the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. James Blind is engineering and producing today's program. Today we're going to hear from Robert Walgamuth. He's the author of Lies Men Believe and the Truth That Sets Them Free. That's coming up in the five o'clock hour. Also tomorrow... Singing Christmas Tree resumes 7.30 p.m. Thursday night, 7.30 p.m. Friday night. Two performances on Saturday, 2 and 7 o'clock. And then the final performance of the 2016, 2016, what year is this? 2018, uh, Singing Christmas Tree, the 56th year. Check it out. And if you are planning to come, now's the time to arrange those tickets. Taking a look at some of the developing news stories of the day, Republican Senator uh, Cindy Hyde-Smith defeated Democrat Mike Espy in Mississippi's runoff election uh, Tuesday. As the GOP increased its incoming majority in the U.S. Senate, President Trump has threatened to cut all subsidies to General Motors after the automaker announced it was cutting 15 percent of its North American workforce and closed several plants. Nancy Pelosi's leadership faced a test as Democrats uh, met today to nominate a new incoming House Speaker, I'll bring you up to date on that. And in an interview with Fox News Tucker Carlson, conservative writer Jerome Corsi, who's under investigation by Robert Mueller, called the special counsel's probe a political witch hunt. Former President Barack Obama has slammed President Trump without mentioning him by name at an exclusive gala event in Houston. Again, no big news or surprise there. Well, incumbent Republican Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith handily beat back an insurgent challenge by Democrat Mike Espy in Mississippi's special election runoff yesterday to become the first woman ever elected to Congress from that state. With 95 percent of the precincts reporting earlier in the day, Hyde-Smith had um, uh, beat her uh, opponent with a commanding margin 54.4% to 45.6, according to the state election officials. The race marked the final midterm contest of 2018, thankfully. With Hyde-Smith's victory, Republicans expanded their incoming Senate majority to 53 seats. Hyde-Smith's win gives Republicans more leeway to ensure the confirmation of the president's federal judicial and cabinet nominees that require Senate approval and strengthens the party's chances of holding the majority in 2020. President Trump late Tuesday congratulated Hyde-Smith. And the president says he's very disappointed in GM. The president's uh, threatened to cut off all federal subsidies to General Motors over its massive scheduled layoffs and cutbacks here in the U.S. The president lambasted GM in a tweet on Tuesday, one day after the auto manufacturer announced it was cutting 15 percent of its North uh, North American workforce and halting production at several plants. Very disappointed with General Motors and their CEO, Mary Barra, for closing plants in Ohio, Michigan and Maryland, he wrote. Nothing being closed in Mexico and China. The U.S. saved General Motors, and this is the thanks we get. Well, shares slipped over 2% following the tweet. The closure in five GM facilities in Ohio, Michigan, and Maryland, and in Ontario, Canada, could affect up to 14,000 employees. 
GM will also cease production of several car models we mentioned yesterday, including the Chevrolet Cruze, the Impala, and the Buick LaCrosse. Nancy Pelosi tried to quash the potential Democrat civil war. She seems to have done so uh, rather handily, although the final vote doesn't come officially until January. House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi faced uh, House Democrats uh, today in the last test of her political power. The lead up to an internal vote for speaker has been marked by uh, highly visible intra-party squabbles. A swath of vocal uh, Democrats ranging from Representative Seth Moulton out of Massachusetts to Kathleen Rice, no relationship, to Tim Ryan, New York and Ohio respectively, want someone else. But despite the drama, Democrats will likely return her to the job she held from 2007 to 2011. The bigger test comes when the new Congress starts in January and the San Francisco Democrat must win a floor vote. And that would include those who are coming to, to a Congress for the first time from members of both parties, Republicans and anti-Nancy freshman Democrats among them. Yet no other Democrat as of now is challenging Pelosi for that slot. And some Democrats who vowed to oppose her during the election have since softened that position. Well, conservative author Jerome Corsi told Fox News Tucker Carlson tonight that special counsel Robert Mueller's investigators accused him of lying under oath only after I couldn't give them what they wanted. Corsi spoke to Fox News one day after he announced he would reject a deal with investigators that would have required him to uh, plead guilty to perjury. A draft court filing prepared as part of the abortive plea deal said Corsi notified Trump advisor Roger Stone in August of 2016 that WikiLeaks intended to release information damaging to Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. Corsi, the one-time Washington bureau chief of the website InfoWars, described his interview uh, with investigators as a memory test. They ask you a question. They have uh, material they won't show you. You've forgotten about it. And they say you just lied because this email you forgot about in 2016 proves your current memory is wrong, he said. He said a lot more than that. You might be able to find it on Fox News website. It was rather interesting insight into how special counsels work. And President Obama took a veiled swipe at President Trump without mentioning his name. Former President Barack Obama praised his indictment-free tenure Tuesday during an invitations-only gala in Houston. Not only did I not get indicted, nobody in my administration got indicted, Obama said, to a crowd of more than 1,000. By the way, it was the only administration in modern history that that can be said about. In fact, nobody came close to being indicted, probably because the people who joined us were there for the right reasons. Well, there were things short of indictment, um, indictments, but he's accurate, at least in that regard. Uh, the former president's remarks came at the tail of an hour-long joint interview with former Secretary of State James Baker III during the 25th anniversary celebration of the nonpartisan Baker Institute for Public Policy at Rice University. No relationship. The Houston Chronicle reported. And on this day in 2001, Enron Corporation, once the world's largest energy trader, collapses after would-be uh, rescuer Denergy Inc. backs out of an $8.4 billion takeover deal. Enron would file for bankruptcy protection four days later. And on this day in 1990, Margaret Thatcher resigns as British Prime Minister during an audience with Queen Elizabeth II, who then confers the uh, premiership on John Major. And on this day in 1974, President John, uh, rather President Ford, nominates federal judge John uh, Paul Stevens to the U.S. Supreme Court vacated by William O. Douglas. Just a reminder, later in the, the program today, in fact, in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Robert Walgamuth. He's the author of Lies Men Believe and the Truth That Sets Them Free. We'll also work, uh, also work our way through some of the day's 
uh, news headlines. The Tijuana mayor is saying that $30,000 a day, that's what it's costing that municipality and the funding for migrants, is about to run out. Some of whom are now turning around and either heading home or are going to seek asylum elsewhere. We'll tell you more about that and much more in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the mayor of the Mexican border city increasingly under strain from the growing number of migrants arriving there in hopes of crossing into the United States, says he expects funds supporting them to run out by Friday. Tijuana Mayor, uh, mayor Juan Manuel revealed on Tuesday the city only has enough resources to assist the crowd for a few more days. The city's treasurer told the San Diego Union-Tribune that Tijuana has been spending more than $30,000 a day on the caravan arrivals. We won't compromise the resources of the residents of Tijuana, he said during a press conference. We won't raise taxes tomorrow to pay for today's problems. Well, nearly all of the migrants that have arrived in Tijuana have been hunkering down at an outdoor sports complex within the site of the U.S. border, a place that's becoming more overcrowded each day. A delegate in the Tijuana area and an official overseeing that shelter said that on uh, Wednesday that there are currently around 6,000 there, 4,000 of which are men. The rest are about split evenly between women and children. Mexico's newest president um, is set to begin his administration this weekend uh, and he's hoping to um, uh, hoping the federal government can step in and provide more resources. Well, the new government signaled on Tuesday that it would be willing to house the migrants while they wait to apply for asylum in the United States, but didn't elaborate on what plans it may be considering. Prepare ourselves to assume that a good part of them are going to be in this area of Mexico for the coming months, said the incoming foreign relations secretary. He vowed the government will have this support or really have to support local authorities. According to the Associated Press, this is not a bilateral negotiation. That is something we have to do. He uh, also asked the Trump administration to um, chip in at least $20 billion on development projects to help create jobs in Central America. Many of the migrants say that they uh, uh, fled their home countries to escape threats of violence from gangs and to find work. Uh, And the back and forth continues. This is costing us to keep these people here. And all those funds have to come from someplace. And it's uh, municipal funds, said the uh, uh, mayor who represents the region uh, and the city of Tijuana. Well, the Justice Department on Tuesday said it plans to appeal a court order barring the government from refusing asylum to immigrants who cross the U.S.-Mexico border illegally. The department filed a notice of plans to appeal the board, the order rather by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and also requested that District Judge John Tigar uh, issue a stay of his uh, November 19th order. President Trump on November 9th issued a proclamation that said anyone who crossed the southern border between uh, Uh, Official ports of entry would be ineligible for asylum. In the injunction, Tigar, he uh, sided with legal groups who noted federal law, which says immigrants uh, in the United States can request asylum regardless of whether they entered the country lawfully. Whatever the scope of the president's authority, he may not rewrite the immigration laws to impose a condition that Congress has expressly forbidden, the judge said in his order. The administration insists it must regulate asylum claims, partly because of the caravans of migrants that are starting to arrive at the border. And there are apparently several caravans, each larger than the one before. Uh, Hours after Tigar um, issued the nationwide injunction, the president said he was going to put in a major complaint about the appellate court 
uh, which is based in San Francisco. He also criticized the Ninth Circuit and called it the uh, all called it a disgrace and alleged on Twitter that the court has Obama judges. Well, Tigar was um, nominated by former President Obama in 2012 to the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California. The president's remarks led to a back and forth with Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts, who released a rare statement rebuking the president. We do not have Obama judges or Trump judges. I would that that were true, but I fear that it's not. Bush judges or Clinton judges, Roberts said uh, last Wednesday. We certainly should not. Uh, But I fear that we do. Uh, That's my editorial comment. But he he went on to say that what we have is an extraordinary group of dedicated judges doing their level best to do uh, equal rights to those appearing before them. Well, asylum is intended for people who have fled their countries of origin because they have suffered persecution or fear that they will be persecuted if they are forced to return. Crossing the U.S.-Mexico border between ports of entry is a federal crime, but that does not typically preclude someone from requesting asylum. Tigar uh, noted that federal law says any uh, that someone may seek asylum if they have arrived in the United States, whether or not at a designated port of arrival. Illegal crossings overall are well below the historical highs from previous decades, but still uh, high enough to keep uh, Border Patrol um, very, very busy. <clears throat> also, President Trump late Tuesday congratulated incumbent Republican Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith uh, for handily defeating an insurgent challenge by Democrat Mike Espy in Mississippi's contentious special election runoff to become the first woman ever elected to Congress from that state. The GOP victory gives Republicans a net gain of two Senate seats in the midterm elections and a 53-47 advantage in the upper chamber, a margin that could prove critical in contentious confirmation battles uh, that will most assuredly come. Well, another Democratic lawmaker who vowed not to support Nancy Pelosi for House Speaker is softening his position or has softened his position. Representative Stephen Lynch, a Democrat out of Massachusetts, was one of 16 incumbent and incoming House Democrats who signed on to a letter last week opposing Pelosi for the leadership position. But he appeared to reverse course after telling a local television station over the weekend that if it's a choice between her and a Republican, of course, it would never be a Republican, he would back his California colleague. Well, kind of a straw man there. If it becomes as um, uh, a a choice between a Republican and Nancy Pelosi, I'll obviously support Nancy Pelosi, he told the local television station. But I do not think we risk losing the majority in the House and we risk having President Trump elected for another four years if the Democrats don't offer a new direction for the Democratic Party. Well, last week, Representative Brian Higgins said that he changed his mind regarding his opposition to Pelosi after she promised to tackle a major infrastructure bill in the upcoming session of Congress and work with him on lowering the age of the Medicare buy-in. Some will ask why I have changed my position, he said, after being elected on holding a different position. The answer is simple. I took a principled stand on issues of vital importance, not only to my uh, constituents in western New York, but also to more than 300 million Americans whose lives can be improved by progress in these areas. He issued the statement saying a principled stand, however, often requires a pragmatic outlook in order to meet with success. Well, Higgins had signaled... um, or rather signed on to a letter calling for new leadership. But he told the Buffalo News Democrats uh, don't even have a a semblance of a viable alternative at this point, which was true at the time he signed on to the letter, when it comes to who was going to hold the gavel in the upcoming Congress. So it's rather interesting to see how uh, many of these members have now reversed course. 
Well, House Democrats um, tapped Nancy Pelosi today as the party's nominee for speaker. But the political powerhouse is still fighting to uh, uh, lock down enough support to secure the gavel in January's floor vote, as some Democrats call for new leadership. Pelosi, who faced no Democratic challengers, at least thus far, easily won her party's nomination during the closed-door House Democratic Caucus. It was a leadership elections at the uh, Capitol. And while intra-party tensions didn't uh, appear to be on display in Wednesday's meetings, 32 House Democrats did vote against her. The California Democrat now faces a final floor vote with the entire House of representatives on the 3rd of January when she'll have to uh, scrounge for additional support. While 203 Democrats voted for her today, it will take 218 votes to clinch the uh, speakership with all members voting. Some who opposed her on Wednesday could still flip to support her uh, her on the floor. Well, Democrats on Wednesday also elected Maryland uh, Representative Steny Hoyer for majority leader and South Carolina Representative Jim Clyburn for majority whip. New York uh, Representative uh, Hakeem Jeffries was elected as Democratic Caucus chairman after running against fellow uh, Congressional Black Caucus member Representative Barbara Lee of California. Pelosi, speaking to reporters after the vote, expressed confidence that she will win the speakership in January, saying, I think we're in pretty good shape. Still, the big question is whether or not Pelosi can get the 218 votes in January. More than a dozen House Democrats have called for new leadership and have said they won't vote for her on the floor. But we've already seen some who are currently in the House uh, flip. So we'll see what uh, what happens next. Conservative Republican Ron DeSantis and progressive Democrat uh, Andrew Gillum They presented voters with starkly different choices on an array of issues, none more distinctly uh, polar than their plans for charter schools. In short, DeSantis proposed expanding them while Gillum espoused siphoning them off as uh, drains on the public school system. Well, that distinction, rather than the personalities and ideologies involved, may have compelled about 100,000 African-American women, the vast majority registered Democrats, to vote for DeSantis over Gillum. On the 6th of November, according to William Maddox, the director of the Marshall Center for Educational Options at the James Madison Institute of Tallahassee-based conservative think tank. According to a CNN exit poll of the roughly roughly rather 650,000 black women who voted in Florida, 18 percent chose DeSantis over Gillum. An unexpected wedge of support from school choice moms. That was uh, the difference in the race. Uh, concludes Maddox in a Wall Street Journal analysis of Florida's midterm elections. And while 18 percent of black female vote in Florida is equal to less than 2 percent of the total electorate in an election decided by fewer than 32,463 votes, these 100,000 black women proved decisive, Maddox Uh, points out more than 290,000 students are enrolled in the state's 650 uh, charter schools. In addition, about 108,000 low-income students participate in the Step Up for Student program, which grants tax credit-funded scholarships to attend private schools. According to Maddox, most Step Up students are minorities whose mothers are registered Democrats. Yet many of these school-choice moms vote for gubernatorial candidates committed to protecting their ability to choose where their child goes to school. During the campaign, DeSantis promised to expand corporate tax credits to grow school choice voucher programs and to increase funding for the programs by at least the annual allowable growth, about 25 percent beginning next year. 
That increase is $873 million spent last year, or rather to that amount spent last year in school choice vouchers, would mean $218 million more for charter schools, or nearly $1.1 billion in fiscal year 2020. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Five minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Jerome Corsi, who's a 72-year-old, was interviewed on the Tucker Carlson program yesterday. It was a rather interesting conversation. If you have the opportunity to find it on Fox News, you might want to listen in. It gives us something of an insight into how special counsels uh, function. But uh, 72-year-old Corsi uh, has a Ph.D. in political science from Harvard. He's written two New York Times bestsellers about politics, and he's the kind of person who could and probably should be happily retired by now. Instead, he's facing felony charges from Robert Mueller. Well, how did this happen? Uh, Tucker Carl- Carlson rather points out that earlier this year, the independent counsel subpoenaed Corsi and seized his laptop and personal phone, which he gave Uh, gave up gladly. They had all of his uh, communications. They know exactly what he did and didn't say. In September, Corsi was uh, summoned to an interview with prosecutors. They asked him if he'd ever tried to broker a meeting with Julian Assange in London. Corsi responded, no, I didn't want anyone uh, to see Assange. So the prosecution left the room to uh, confer after Corsi said that. They returned and informed Corsi that he had just committed a felony. Well, on Corsi's laptop was an email chain uh, from more than two years before, in which he had uh, been asked to contact Assange. Of course, he forwarded that email to someone else. He didn't forward it to Assange, and he didn't make contact, but he had forgotten uh, what had happened two years earlier. Nothing ever came of uh, of this forwarded um, email. Well, again, the independent counsel would know because they have Corsi's laptop and phone. They ask a question he couldn't recall. They know that Corsi never left the United States, never spoke to Julian Assange, and yet they pose the question. Well, Corsi said he forgot all about forwarding the email. Again, not to WikiLeaks, not to anyone forwarding it to someone. Well, for the crime of forgetting, he's facing bankruptcy and imprisonment. So ask yourself the question, as was asked by Tucker Carlson on his program yesterday. How would any of us fare under this standard? How would Robert Mueller fare under the same standard he's set up for Jerome Kersey, or rather Corsi, different person, Kersey? Anyway, Mueller is a 74-year-old who, if uh, the next special prosecutor seized his personal computer and interrogated him about uh, every email he'd ever sent or forwarded going back years, is likely to forget. He'd probably be able to remember some of it, but all of it? To the letter? No. In fact, I don't think I could. Well, keep in mind that the slightest mistake would mean prison time. Would that be justice or would it be uh, the opposite? Well, that's the question that he left hanging in this um, interview with Jerome Kersey. I think all of us want to get to the bottom of what may or may not have happened. But this kind of what appears to me to be entrapment uh, is not what I think the most uh, Americans have in mind when they uh, support or at least uh, witness a special counsel being seated. Um, in trapping people into making mistakes by asking questions they're not likely to be able to give a correct answer to by virtue of the passage of time. Raises questions not just about this uh, investigation, but previous investigations as well. Well, a group of mostly Catholic and Protestant feminists have teamed up to publish a woman's Bible for the hashtag MeToo era. The recent publication of the Uni Bible de Femmes it's um, 
has feminists from Geneva touting what they say is an answer to lingering patriarchal reading of the Bible. Theology professor Lorraine Savoy said for an interview published Tuesday that she helped allies spearhead the draft to tackle completely outdated ideas with no relevance to today's values or equality. Now, this goes back to her understanding of what the Bible is, who's responsible for uh, its writing and whether or not it's inspired. So I find this rather uh, telling. Feminist values and reading the Bible are not incompatible, she told Agents France Press. Uh, we are fighting against a literal reading of the text, uh, colleague Elizabeth um, Parmentier uh, added. Elements of the Bible are like taking a letter someone sends to give advice as being valid for all eternity. Each chapter of a woman's Bible addresses existential questions for women, questions they are still asking themselves today. Well, we have apparently been rescued um, by feminists who are interjecting under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I'll leave that a rhetorical question. A new uh, standard for the scriptures. Uh, the authors, along with 18 others uh, from around the world, said that they were inspired to write their book. Inspired. Uh, after reading a similar work, the Women's Bible from 1898. Just going to leave it hanging there for your consideration. Well, in Sunday's New York Times, Andrea Long Chu wrote a piece that it, it was heartfelt and heartbreaking. I, I tell you, it just reminded me that there are hurting people who, regardless of whether or not we agree with the positions they take, we ought to have compassion. And uh, while I make reference to her specific headline and references she makes in that article, I want to warn you that it is uh, somewhat explicit, not for the sake of being prurient, but uh, to express, as she did, uh, her challenge. So if you have young people listening, this might be a good time to to turn away for the next few minutes. But in the Sunday's New York Times, Andrea Long Chu writes a heartfelt and heartbreaking op-ed. Ryan Anderson also commented on it, and I thought uh, did an excellent job of putting it into perspective, on life with gender dysphoria. It's titled, My New Vagina Won't Make Me Happy. The op-ed reveals uh, the painful truths about many transgender lives and in, in advertently communicates almost the exact opposite of its intended argument. Next week, she's undergoing a, a, surgery, a surgery, rather, it's called a vaginoplasty, or as Chu puts it, next Thursday, I will get a vagina. The procedure will last about six hours, and I will be in recovery for at least three months. Uh, will this bring happiness? Probably not, but uh, Chu wants, wants it all the same. She writes, this is what I want, but there is no guarantee it will make me happier. In fact, I don't expect it to. That shouldn't disqualify me from getting it, end quote. Well, she argues that the simple desire for sex reassignment surgery should be all that is required for a patient to receive it. No consideration for authentic health or well-being or concern about poor outcomes should prevent a doctor from performing the surgery if a patient wants it. She explains, and I quote, no amount of pain anticipated or continuing justifies its withholding, end quote. Well, this is a rather extreme conclusion, Ryan Anderson uh, uh, points out, Chu writes, surgery's only prerequisite should be a simple demonstration of want, end quote. Well, this is quite a claim, uh, Anderson points out, um, uh, and uh, Chu makes a number of other points. First, she acknowledges that the surgery won't actually reassign sex. She writes, and I quote, my body will regard the vagina as a wound. As a result, it will require regular painful attention to maintain, end quote. Sex reassignment is quite literally impossible. Surgery can't actually reassign sex because sex isn't assigned in the first place. 
As he pointed out in the book we've uh, reviewed here, When Harry Became Sally, sex is a bodily reality, the reality of how an organism is organized with respect to sexual reproduction. That reality isn't assigned at birth or at any other time after. Sex, maleness or femaleness, is established at a child's conception, can be uh, ascertained even at the earliest stages of human development by technological means, and can be observed visually well before birth with ultrasound imaging. Cosmetic surgery and cross-sex hormones don't change biological reality. People who undergo sex reassignment procedures do not become the opposite sex. They merely masculinize or feminize their outward appearance. Second, Chu acknowledges the deep pain of gender dysphoria, and we ought to be compassionate toward those uh, who uh, suffer with it. The sense of distress or alienation one feels at one's bodily sex. Dysphoria uh, feels like being unable to get warm, no matter how many layers you put on. It feels like hunger without appetite. It feels like getting on an airplane to fly home, only to realize mid-flight that this is it. You're going to spend the rest of your life on an airplane. It feels like grieving. It feels like having nothing to grieve. Now, that is a sad description of gender dysphoria, and it ought to evoke uh, compassion and empathy. Third, Chu acknowledges that transitioning may not make things better and could even make things worse. She writes, I feel demonstrably worse since I started on hormones and continues. Like many of my trans friends, I've watched my dysphoria balloon since I began transition. Indeed, as uh, documented in the book, again, when Harry became Sally, the medical evidence suggests that sex reassignment does not adequately address the physio- the psychosocial difficulties faced by people who identify as transgender. And even when the procedures are successful technically and cosmetically, even in uh, cultures that are relatively trans-friendly, transitioners still face poor outcomes. Even the Obama administration admitted that the best studies do not report improvement after reassignment surgery. In August of 2016, the Centers for Medicine and uh, Medicare and Medicaid wrote the four best designed and conducted studies that assessed quality of life before and after surgery using validated, albeit nonspecific psychometric studies did not demonstrate clinically significant changes or differences in psychometric test results after gender reassignment surgery. So what does that mean? Well, a population of patients is suffering so much that they would submit to amputations and other radical surgeries and the best research the Obama administration could find suggests that it brings them no meaningful improvement in their quality of life. And again, this this breaks my heart. Fourth, Chu acknowledges a struggle with suicide ideation. I was not suicidal before hormones. Now I often am, she said, on a drug therapy. And this raises some serious questions about very young people who are now being Uh, given these kinds of drugs without knowing the long-term implications. In 2016, the Obama administration acknowledged a similar reality in a discussion of the largest and most robust study on sex reassignment. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid pointed out, and I'm quoting, the study identified increased mortality in psychiatric hospitalization compared to the matched uh, controls. The mortality was primarily due to completed suicides, 19.1-fold greater than in controlled um, Swedes. Well, these results are tragic and they directly contradict the most popular media narratives as well as many of the snapshot uh, studies that do not track people over time. Indeed, the previous administration noted that mortality from this patient population did not become apparent until after 10 years. So when the media touts studies that only track outcomes for a few years and claim the reassignment is a stunning success, there are good grounds for skepticism. And I won't go on, but um, 
the New York Times piece, I think, helps us better understand the struggle of those with uh, dysphoric um, struggles, as well as uh, some of the challenges of trying to deal with that, the, the psychological implications of that. I don't know about you, but I take seriously the, the opportunity to pray for and extend compassion to those who struggle in this area. 47 minutes after four, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, the Taxpayer Association of Oregon points out that it was only two weeks ago the state economics uh, or other economists uh, were making headlines for Oregon's surging tax revenue as it was exceeding expectations. Personal income tax collections were up $136 million. That's 6% from the expected forecast. Business income tax revenue was up $62 million. That's 32% up uh, from the expected forecast. Lottery revenue up 5%. Now we're told that Oregon has a $623 million shortfall. How can Oregon have surging revenue during a time of record-breaking national economic growth? And how can they have a shortfall after they just raised a billion in new taxes last year? Well, the answer is overspending. That's generally the answer. It shows that no economy known on earth can keep up with political overspending and waste of our tax dollars. Well, contributing to the shortfall is the state's $24 billion PERS pension system deficit, which is uh, draining budget dollars from every part of our state and local government. Another cost driver has been the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, which failed to keep health care affordable. The Affordable Care Act included 20 new or increased taxes, along with a mountain of regulations. To the average person, it was easy to see why it raised costs, and rather than Uh, reducing them. And other problems uh, with Obamacare was that it was front-loaded with subsidies to attract state participants. Now that those subsidies are declining on schedule, uh, the participating states are now facing the, uh, the true and actual cost of Obamacare. It's more than they can handle. The math was always there to show that it was uh, a bad idea, but politicians uh, traded a cheap subsidy deal today for an unfunded crisis tomorrow. And tomorrow is sadly here again, quoting from uh, the Association of um, Taxpayers, or Taxpayer Association of Oregon, I can never get that right. There are also ballot measure spending mandates and $154 million in government uh, uh, raises that are also driving the cost of the shortfall. The state and local government hiring spree of the past, something as high as 17 new employees hired every day, you can kind of imagine the math on that, has now made it more unaffordable to retain them today. And because of overspending, we've both a shortfall and a pension crisis amidst an uh, overperforming economy. Now, how bad will it get when the economy slows down? Well, this is why the politicians in uh, Salem and Governor Brown are brewing up billions in new taxes for 2019 to make you pay for their lack of discipline, restraint, and for their bad math. Hmm. Well... Uh, This is sort of a heads up for the legislative session this year, as many of these issues will, of course, be on the fore out of absolute necessity, although they might have been avoided if uh, more careful budgeting uh, might have been imposed at an earlier time. Well, today on the program in the five o'clock hour, we're going to talk about uh, new research on what it means to exercise or fail to exercise. And apparently, Uh, Being couch potatoes is a serious issue these days. We're going to talk about the value of regular exercise. Right in this time of year when people are less um, active in the months previous, we start to think about our health and the coming new year and resolutions we might make to ourselves and for the sake of our health. Now, we don't always 
keep those resolutions, and there are better ways of approaching that than others. But nonetheless, this is a time when people are thinking about all of that. And these two new research studies might be just the inducement we need to start to move a bit more and to look at how much time we actually spend, well, sitting. Sadly, for Americans, that's far longer than is healthy for us. We're also going to talk with Robert Walgamuth. He is the uh, author of Lies Men Believe and the Truth That Sets Them Free. Uh, He's an author who makes the point that in a marriage, um, uh, in addition to the baggage that the male and female bring to that relationship, there's uh, other challenge, that other challenge of of, – dealing with uh, other issues. So we'll talk with him about that. And uh, we'll tell you more about the U.S. servicemen killed in Afghanistan. There was a roadside bomb that took the lives of three, and we now know that among them was at least one uh, resident from the state of Washington. And that follows a similar event involving a resident from Washington just a few days before. So this is a certainly a, a sad period for uh, for them and their families, but also for uh those who care about our our, uh, military, Uh, keeping in mind that they remain in harm's way when we're celebrating Thanksgiving and when we're celebrating Christmas and we're having all of the festivities that um, we enjoy during this time of year. I've thought a lot about those in uh, Paradise, California, who had made plans for their holiday season and without much warning, everything they owned is now gone. All of their plans have been disrupted And it's a reminder to hold lightly the things that we think we know and the plans that we make and the things we anticipate, recognizing that they can be lost in a a moment. Uh, One of the members of the Singing Christmas Tree had 14 family members lose their homes in the Paradise Fire. And I so enjoyed our conversation because while that is such a tragedy and my heart goes out to them, she said they had decided as a family that their focus was going to be on the value of the lives of each family member that had been spared, that they were choosing to be grateful for what, not, uh, not focusing on what they had lost, and they lost everything, uh, but focusing on what they had uh, retained, and that is their lives, their relationship with, uh, with God, and moving forward. And looking at the things they possessed is sometimes being a distraction and an entanglement. So they they chose a perspective that was very different than most of us would. And it reminded me, again, to hold things lightly, my plans, the things that I possess, the things that I might cherish, uh, that are just that, things, rather than people. So lots of people to pray for and things to pray about as we uh, enter into the holiday season. All right, we've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. When we come back, are you a couch potato? Could cost you. We'll explain. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend, engineering and producing. Later this hour, we'll hear from Robert Walgamuth, his book, Lies Men Believe and the Truth That Sets Them Free. We'll also talk about the U.S. servicemen killed in Afghanistan, a, a roadside uh, bomb. They have now been identified and one uh, man from Battleground is among those who lost their lives. Well, the headline read, Couch Potato Death. More Americans sitting, not moving, health officials warn. Now, I refer to this story from a seated position that I've held pretty much the entire day. Well, the uh, Laura Kelly writing on the subject in the Washington Times says, Call it suicide on the backside. Americans are sitting themselves to death. This is according to federal data. 
About one in 10 Americans sits uh, more than eight hours a day and engages in no physical activity, according to results from the 2015-2016 National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. Now, 2015-2016 was so like two years ago, but um, my guess is it's either the, the same or worse. The couch potato combination of sitting and not moving is leading to increased occurrences of heart disease, stroke, diabetes, and obesity, say researchers from the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The CDC researchers spotlighted rather the national survey data in a report that was published yesterday in the Journal of the American Medical Association. A growing number of Americans are sitting more and doing less, they said. Now, that could not possibly relate to us, James. Wouldn't you say you and I move more than the average American? Yeah, probably not. Federal health officials last week updated guidelines on exercise and physical activity to just encourage Americans to move after finding that 80 percent failed to meet earlier guidelines of 10 minutes of physical activity per day. Well, that's kind of a sad number. Research published last year found that long, uninterrupted periods of sitting is associated with early death, even among people who exercise. So James and I are going to take a quick break here. You can just talk amongst yourselves. We're going to jog around the engineer's booth and the talk studio to try to get the heart pumping and the blood moving. Okay, we're not actually going to do that. But the CDC researchers examined the data to discern the prevalence of low physical activity and sedentary behavior here in the U.S., which could help um, health care providers target interventions, whether to increase physical activity, lessen time sitting, or both. Well, the data are based on survey answers from almost 6,000 adults. We were not included among the 6,000, by the way, about how much time they spend sitting per day, including at home, in transit, at work, at a computer, watching television or spending time with friends. Respondents also were asked how much physical activity they completed per week and at what intensity. Now, I know everyone's wearing a Fitbit today and the number of steps that you're taking is calculated to simulate or at least to represent how much exercise you've actually had during the course of the day, but that may not be sufficient. What is important in this study, we're being told, is how much time is spent sitting. Not how much time is spent moving, but how much is spent sitting. Overall, the researchers found that more Americans are sitting for hours on end and are inactive. About 14% say they sit for six hours a day and are inactive. The second largest responding group said that they sit for more than eight hours a day and are inactive. That's 11.4%. The third largest group sat for between four to six hours per day and reported being inactive at 11.2%. About 2.6% of adults said that they sit for less than four hours per day and are sufficiently active. And 2.7% of adults said that they sit less than four hours a day and perform enough physical activity. Well, both high sedentary behavior and physical inactivity have negative health effects, and evidence suggests that the risk of premature mortality is particularly elevated when they occur together. The researchers uh, wrote, practitioners can support efforts to implement programs, practices, and policies where adults live, learn, work, and play to help them sit less and spend more time being physically active. So, James, I think you and I ought to uh, take a delegation to the general manager's office and talk about perhaps um, less time sitting and more time being active. Maybe the uh, Salem media could purchase treadmills for all of us and we can do our work while moving or, um, you know, I, I don't know, breaks throughout the day or we could go walk around the building. I'm not sure what, uh, what we want to suggest.
You look like you want to say something. Didn't you just have a treadmill? Moving on, um, <laughs> you know, I did. I bought a treadmill. It's kind of a lightweight version for my office, thinking I'm going to spend some time each day on the treadmill. Well, that didn't work. I couldn't read while on it. I couldn't uh, follow stories. I couldn't, you know, be online. And it just it didn't work. And I know those standing desks are kind of the new thing where you're doing your work, but from a standing position. And I would love to do that. But my desk configuration would not permit that um, that possibility. So I'm trying to come up with something else. You know, the one, it's funny. The one person I could think of in our office who had a stand-up desk has not used that the stand-up portion yes. of his desk for quite some time. Yeah, it uh, it wasn't conducive to his need to work with several screens and so on. So I don't know what the answer is here, but at least I'm thinking about it. Maybe that constitutes some movement. Then there's this. Regular exercise may keep your body 30 years younger. The muscles of older men and women who have exercised for decades are indistinguishable in many ways from those of healthy 25-year-olds. That's really good news if you happen to be one of those older men and women who've exercised for decades. Well, the muscles of older men and women who have uh, done this exercise are indistinguishable from their younger peers, according to an uplifting new study of a group of active septuagenarians. These men and women also had much higher aerobic capacities than most people their age, the study showed, making them biologically about 30 years younger than their chronological ages. All of us are aging every second, of course. In fact, I'm, what, minutes older than I was when this started. Which leads many of us also to uh, be deeply interested in what we can expect from our bodies and health as those seconds and subsequently years and decades mount. Um, worryingly, statistics and simple observations suggest that many elderly people experience frailty, illness, and dependence. But science hasn't established whether and to what extent such physical decline is inevitable with age, or if it is at, uh, at least partially a byproduct of our modern lifestyle and perhaps amenable to change. So again, maybe I need to get that um, treadmill back in the office. There have been hints, though, that physical activity might allow, uh, might alter rather, how we age. Recent studies have found that older athletes have healthier muscles, brains, immune systems, and hearts than people of the same age who are sedentary. No big surprise there. But many of these studies have concentrated on competitive masters athletes. These are folks who train for competition, not people who exercise recreationally, and few have included many women. So we are underrepresented in these Studies. So for the new study, which was published in August in the Journal of Applied Physiology, researchers at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana, decided to look at a distinctive set of older men and women. We were very interested in people who had started exercising during the running and exercise boom of the 70s. Uh, The director of human performance laboratory at Ball State and the new study senior author, Scott Trapp, says. Well, that era, bookended to some extent by the passage of Title IX in 1972 and the publication of The Complete Book of Running in 1977, introduced a generation of young men and women to recreational physical activity. Now, just a side note, in 1977, I believe I'm featured in The Complete Book of Running. There are pictures of me doing some stretches in that era. I was running for the University of Oregon at the time, I don't know if I'm benefiting from the exercise in that era and the lack of exercise in this one, but something to think about. They took up exercise as a hobby, referring to 
those of us around at the time. Well, some of them maintained that hobby throughout the next 50 or so years, running, cycling, swimming, or otherwise working out, uh, out often, even if they rarely or never competed. Well, I've had seasons during that interim where I've worked out and seasons where I've spent hours sitting doing a job. Well, those were the men and women who most now well into their 70s. I'm not there yet. Uh, he and his colleagues sought to study them. Well, using local advertisements and other recruitment methods, they found 28 of uh, these men and women, including seven uh, women, each of whom had been physically active for the past five decades. Oh, how I wish I had uh, continued to be physically active. They also recruited a second group of age-matched older people who had not exercised during adulthood and a third group of active young people in their 20s. They brought everyone into a lab, tested their aerobic capacities and using tissue samples, measured the number of capillaries and the level of certain enzymes in their muscles. High numbers for each indicate muscular health. Well, the researchers focused on the cardiovascular system and muscles because they are believed invariably to decline with age, and the scientists had expected that they would see what Dr. Trapp describes as a hierarchical pattern in differences between the groups. Well, the young people, they thought, would possess the most robust muscles and aerobic capacities, with the lifelong exercisers being slightly weaker on both counts, and the older non-exercisers punier, punier, if you will, still. But that outcome is not precisely what they found. Instead, the muscles of the older exercises resemble those of the young people, with as many capillaries and enzymes as theirs, and far more than in the muscles of the sedentary elderly. Well, the active elderly group did uh, have lower aerobic capacity than the younger, but their capacities were about 40% higher than those of their inactive peers. In fact, when the researchers compared the active older people's aerobic capacity to those of established data about normal capacities at different ages, they calculated that the aged, active group had the cardiovascular health of people 30 years younger than themselves. Well, that says, uh, says a lot. Together, these findings about muscular and cardiovascular health and active older people suggest that what we now consider to be normal physical deterioration with aging may not be normal or inevitable. This study, however, was cross-sectioned, highlighting a single moment in people's lives and cannot tell whether their exercise habits directly cause the differences in health or if and how genes, income, diet, similar lifestyle factors contributed. But these people were so vigorous, uh, he says, the, the one who did the study, he's in his 50s. They certainly inspire me to stay active, he said. So regular exercise may keep your body as much as 30 years younger than uh, your numeric years. So keep that in mind. James and I, we uh, probably were going to work out some kind of a workout routine for 2019. You and I are going to come to work in our sweats and we're going to, you know, work out and, you know, there'll be weights and stuff. And you see that happening, James? Yeah, pretty much not. All right. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Robert Walgamuth, author of Lies Men's Believe and the Truth That Sets Them Free. Portions of today's program are brought to you today by Zero Res. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, sadly, the Pentagon today released the names of three servicemen killed a day earlier in a roadside bomb attack in Afghanistan. Army Captain Andrew Patrick Ross, age 29, of Lexington, Virginia. Army Sergeant First Class Eric Michael Emmond age 39, of Brush Prairie, Washington, and Air Force Staff Sergeant Dylan 
Elric, um, or rather Ecklin, uh, age 25, of uh, Hookstown, Pennsylvania, died of injuries sustained in the attack in Afghanistan's central Ghazni province, southwest of the capital, Kabul. Tuesday's attack was the deadliest against U.S. forces in Afghanistan this year. Three other service members were wounded in the explosion, along with an American contractor. In all, 12 Americans have been killed in combat in Afghanistan this year, matching the total killed in 2017. Ross and... um, Emmond were assigned to 1st Battalion, 3rd Special Forces Group, based in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Army Special Operations Command spokesman Lauren Beimer said that Ross was on his second overseas tour, while Emmond um, was on his seventh. Seventh. Uh, Both men were uh, posthumously awarded the Bronze Star Medal, the Purple Heart, and the Meritorious Service Medal. Uh, Elchin was assigned to the 26th Special Tactics Squadron based in Cannon Air Force Base in New Mexico. Well, as I mentioned, the 39-year-old soldier from Brush Prairie was also among those killed on Tuesday in Afghanistan. The Department of Defense on Wednesday announced that uh, Army Sergeant First Class Eric Michael Emmond was one of the three killed uh, in Andar, in Afghanistan, the three were uh, supporting Operation Freedom's Sentinel. The other two men killed were identified as Army Sergeant Andrew Patrick Ross, 29, of Lexington, Virginia, and Army Force Staff Sergeant Dylan El- Elchin, 25, of Hookstown. The incident is under investigation, according to the Department of Defense. On November 24th, a different soldier from Washington was also killed while supporting Operation Freedom Sentinel. He was identified as Army Sergeant um, Leandro A.S. Jasso, 25, of Levingworth, Levingworth, uh, Washington. Uh, Army Sergeant um, Beimer said Sunday that uh, Jasso was wounded by small arms fire, was immediately treated and evacuated to the nearest medical treatment facility where he died of his wounds. The incident is also under investigation. Uh, Jasso was assigned to 2nd Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment, Joint Base Lewis-McChord, Washington. He was on his third deployment to Afghanistan after, after enlisting in the Army in 2012. Lieutenant Colonel Rob McChrystal, Commander 2nd Battalion, said Jasso was a humble professional who will be deeply missed. And, of course, the holiday season will be quite different for the families of these three to uh, our own from the Pacific Northwest. Please keep their families uh, in your prayers. Well, tomorrow on the program, we're looking forward to talking with Tim Muehlhoff, uh, who is the author of Defending Your Marriage, The Reality of Spiritual Battle. Now, many of us uh, struggle through life and marriage, anticipating that, yeah, we're going to face some challenges, but sometimes underestimate the third party that seeks to influence the outcome of the vows and commitments that we've made to one another. So we're going to talk with uh, Mr. Muehlhoff about how do we defend our marriage and to recognize the challenges that we face outside of our own uh, perhaps petty differences uh, that drive some of the conflicts that we face. Uh, The Reality of Spiritual Battle is the subtitle of the book, so we're going to talk about how to defend our marriage in that context. And then on Friday, we're looking forward to lightening things up. So if you want to join us, I hope you will. Uh, We're going to have a bit of Fun. Also, want to remind you that the singing Christmas tree resumes tomorrow night, uh, and I'm looking forward to returning to the Keller Auditorium with a great show. And I have to tell you, I've heard from so many people who attended the show. For one thing, I try to go out into the lobby after uh, the show to meet as many folks as possible to see if they're familiar faces. And one of the things I hear over and over and over again is, "This is the best show that we've ever seen of the singing Christmas tree, and the changes that have been made." 
are extraordinary. And that's almost a direct quote that I've heard over and over again. I just want to remind you that Katie Harmon, Miss America 2002 from Oregon also want to remind you, is one of the featured soloists in the program. I have an opportunity to contribute on a couple of songs. There's a cinematic nativity that's been shortened somewhat, the Jefferson Dancers, uh, 26 new songs, 300-voice choir that in, uh, includes the uh, children's choir. It's really a spectacular program. And this is the final weekend. Beginning tomorrow night, there's a program, a performance at 7.30, again on Friday at 7.30. On Saturday, you have two opportunities. There's a matinee at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Saturday, and there's a 7 o'clock performance. And then Sunday is the final performance of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, and that's at 1 o'clock. Again, all at the Keller Auditorium. Tickets are still available and are on sale. A couple of ways to get them. Go to singingchristmastree.org, singingchristmastree.org, or you can phone and purchase your tickets at 503-557-8733. Again, 503-557-8733. You'll have an opportunity to talk to Patty, who uh, manages all of that, and uh, get your tickets before the season ends. The 56th performance of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. So I hope to see you uh, hope to see you there. All right, I think that's it. I think that's all I have to announce. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to take a break for about, what, 22 hours, and we'll be back tomorrow. Again, uh, hearing from Tim Muhlenhoff, author of Defending Your Marriage, The Reality of Spiritual Battle. I want to thank James Blend for producing and engineering today's program, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.